John chapter 20. John chapter 20 in your Bibles, if you turn there, please. John chapter 20. You've all heard the phrase before, seeing is believing, right? You just have to see it. Is that always true? Is that always true? Do we, we take that as a, a principle for all of life? Well, there's some things that, yeah, I mean, if, if you really want to experience the fullness, like take, for instance, the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you know the pictures on the calendar don't do it justice. You can take a picture of the Grand Canyon. You can show some of the beauty and the color of it. But until you walk up and come up to the edge and have your breath taken away by its grandeur and splendor, you really haven't experienced the Grand Canyon. My wife and I, we we go back and forth teasing each other. There's actually a Grand Canyon of Pennsylvania. That's not the one I'm talking about. It's, It's green and it has trees in it. And it's small compared to the one in Arizona, which is a big hole in the ground, right? With beautiful rock, the Colorado River running through that. She gets back at me, though. I'm from Kansas. She says, well, you don't have any trees at all. You don't even know what a tree is. (laughs) But that's an argument for another day. Is seeing always believing? I would say, no, it's not. Because... While we're going to look at some eyewitness, it's very important, eyewitness accounts today of our risen Lord, it's going to come to the same conclusion that you have to, even when you see things and you're saying, I'm not sure what to believe. Has that happened to you this past year or two? Maybe you've seen a video either on the news or social media, and you're like, I'm not quite sure if that's the whole story, right? It, it's, it, it starts too soon or ends too early. You know, and then, you know, Twitter rages for a couple days, and then the rest of the video comes out, and there's a wave coming back, and you realize, wait a minute, seeing's not always believing. But what the encouragement here that we will see in the scripture is that the eyewitnesses account call upon us to believe. And to believe in something amazing and miraculous, something that natural man would say, no, that's impossible, that can't possibly happen, and yet the proof is there. And so as we look at John 20, what we're going to do is look at three personal perspectives on the risen Lord. So three personal perspectives on the risen Lord. We're going to focus in on three different people. Then after we look at these three people and how they responded to the risen Savior, we're going to look at two responses that is, that is given in this passage. There's a response for those that are unbelievers, those that don't believe, those that don't think that it's true. It's going to call upon you to respond. And then there's a response for those of you that do believe, who say, yes, the Lord is risen, and I believe that, and he is my Savior. There's a response there as well. So three people, three perspectives, and then a response for both the believer and the unbeliever. John chapter 20, it starts with an account, a personal account. It starts with Mary Magdalene. We're actually going to come back to her. That's the second person we're going to look at. The first person, though, is mentioned just a few verses in. If you look down at verse 1 of John 20, we'll see who that is. It says, the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, while it is yet dark unto the sepulchre, And seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. And she runneth and cometh unto Simon Peter 
and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they both ran together. The other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and he went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen cloths lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And he went also, then went also that other disciple in, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again into their own home. This first passage I want to focus on that other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Who was that disciple? Well, as you look throughout the book of John, the book that we're in right now, we actually find out that it's John himself. And he often refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. If I were to ask you to name the 12 disciples of Jesus, what names come to mind? Peter, James, John. Okay, we usually remember those three. I think Thaddeus is in there. Is there a guy named Bartholomew? Judas, remember him. He fell away though, right? Thomas, yeah, but we know that Peter, James, and John, those were kind of the inner three of that circle. And John especially had that personal and close relationship with the Savior, the one who lay on his bosom, the one whom Jesus loved. So that's how he refers to himself throughout the entire book of John. And he's saying, I am an eyewitness of this. And we'll see with John that the seeing turned to believing. So who, first of all, was John? Well, he was the beloved disciple, as we said, the one who knew Christ. And what did he see? In these verses, it actually lays out proofs of what John himself, the other disciple, saw in the tomb. Notice, though, I want you to notice, first of all, what he didn't see. What did he not see? He didn't see Jesus. So let me ask you a question. Is seeing believing? Because we're going to see in this passage, this section with John, that he did not see Jesus, and yet how did it end in this section? He believed. So what did he see? What was he an eyewitness to? And what does he now declare to us in this passage today that says, Christ is risen from the dead? Well, notice, I want to notice four things that he saw. First, you'll notice that he saw an empty tomb. An empty tomb. Now, what was this tomb like? Well, maybe you've seen pictures, but it would have been most likely dug into the rock, carved in the rock, or a natural cave, and then they would have rolled a stone, a giant stone, one that not, um, not just one man could just roll out of the way. But it would be rolled over the face of the door, and there's no other way into that tomb. That's the only way, through that door. And there's no way through the stone. It's big. It's strong. And remember, though, what also, also was happening here. There were soldiers that night guarding the tomb because some of the Jews were afraid, you know what? Jesus' body, it might get stolen. Someone might go and steal that body. So let's seal this tomb up 
and put soldiers to guard it. And these were Roman soldiers, not guys that you just mess with. They could take care of business. And so all of that, you see that, and Mary, as we saw, is running to the tomb, and she's fully expecting, okay, Jesus is supposed to be here, and she doesn't even bother going in. She just says, the door is open, he ain't here, and runs and tells then Peter and John. And then they get to have a little foot race, right? And John beats Peter to the tomb, but he says he waited outside the door. And maybe that was out of respect to Simon Peter, who is kind of known for his loud mouth, but also kind of his leadership as well, right? So John was deferring to him, saying, I'll let him go in first. But John peeked in, and he said, the tomb is empty. And still today, the tomb is empty. And that is a proof that Jesus is not there, that he is risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. The second thing, if you notice, it mentions several times, he makes note of it over and over and over again, the idea of linen cloths in verse 7 and verse 8, and even uh, before, verse 5, that he stooped down, he looked in, he saw the linen clothes lying, yet he went not in. Now, if, if you remember other people that were raised from the dead, Pastor Jeff just read of one of those passages, Lazarus, he's been in the grave four days, and he what? He smells like a teenage guy. No, I mean, he stinketh. He smells like a dead body. And how did he come out? Remember how he came out? He came wrapped in linens, and Jesus' first command was, go and unwrap him. But yet in this tomb, there the linen cloths are laid, and the one that would have covered the face is neatly folded at the head of that. So let me ask you a question. If you were a grave robber, you say, Pastor Phil, that's a little weird. I know. But some, sometimes people use this argument. If you were going to go and steal a body, how would you do it? Well, it's already dead, right? You don't want to unwrap that, okay? You understand? You don't want to take the cloth off the face either, right? In other words, you're understanding that that's disgusting, that's gross. You're going to keep it in the body bag. If you're going to steal a body, you're not going to take the time to unwrap it all. You're not going to take the time, okay, we're going to take the covering off, we're going to fold it neatly, and we're going to put it right there. If you're robbing a grave, that's not how any of that works. So the very fact, the second thing he saw, of the linen cloths laid neatly out, again, showed that this wasn't someone coming by and stealing the body of Jesus. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's alive. Amen. What about the third thing? Well, notice that it's not just John there. Who else is with him? Simon Peter. It's kind of the, you know, of the disciples, who, the two we'd put at the top. So these are trusted men, trusted followers of Christ. But remember Old Testament law. They said if you're going to bring an accusation against someone, especially for things like the death penalty, what do you need? You can't just rely on the word of one person. Because what happens when you rely on the word of one person? Well, they could lie, right? They could make something up. They could say something untrue to try to hurt someone else. But notice here, the third thing is that we actually have two witnesses to this account. Two witnesses to say, yes, the tomb is empty. Yes, the linen cloths are laid neatly there. Two witnesses, as required by Jewish law, to say, the tomb is empty. Jesus is risen from the dead. 
And then the fourth thing I want to point out is actually found in verse 8, verse 9. If you look back there again, it says, For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Why would they mention that? Well, what were they speaking of? They were speaking of the scripture. What they had would have been the Old Testament, what we have in our hands today, what we call the Old Testament. And the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus, the Messiah, right? It prophesied that he would come. That he would come as a baby. That he'd be born of a virgin. That he'd be rejected. That he'd be crucified. That he'd be killed on a tree. It also prophesied of his rising again even after three days. Remember, Jesus himself even said, you have the sign of Jonah, who is in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights. And yet the disciples here weren't connecting those dots. And why is that important? Well, it wasn't like they were looking at the Old Testament and saying, I have to force this upon the Messiah. In other words, they weren't saying, I have to bring this to fulfillment. They weren't even thinking about the Old Testament scriptures at this point. What were they doing? They were just showing up seeing and saying, this is what happened. In other words, you actually have trustworthy news here. No fake news involved. Praise the Lord. You have two disciples of Christ bearing witness together, not looking at the Old Testament and saying, okay, this, this had to happen. It wasn't until later afterwards that they finally, through the Holy Spirit and through Christ, connected the dots and saying, oh yeah, he's supposed to rise from the dead. Here they're just saying, this is what's happened. And so John, as he comes to this tomb, he finds it empty. He finds the linen cloths laid there. Peter affirms it as two witnesses. And they're not pulling in Old Testament scriptures at this point. They're just saying, this is what happened. And in my mind, that's four very convincing arguments. Again, that Jesus is risen from the dead. Praise the Lord. He is alive. So John, what was his response at this point? He saw the tomb. He didn't see Jesus. He saw the tomb. He saw the clothes. And his response, look again at the end of verse 8. And he saw and believed. Seeing the empty tomb for John, he's saying, I don't need any more than that. I don't even need to see Jesus I believe he is alive. Amen. That's the first person, John. The second person we're going to look at is Mary Magdalene. We've already met her in verse 1, but then verses 11 through 18 give more of her story. First of all, who is Mary Magdalene? There's a lot of Marys in the Bible. We joke about that. There's like how many and getting them all confused. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so Mary Magdalene, if, if you look back in the scriptures, not the book of John, but the other gospels, it tells us that Mary was one that was possessed with seven devils and that, or demons, and Jesus healed her and cast them out. In other words, Jesus had done miraculous work in her life. Now, there's a lot of other uh, tradition that goes on with that, but none of that is found in the Bible. We just know that she was a disciple, a close disciple or follower of Christ because of what Christ had done in her life. She had already seen amazing and miraculous things. So what was Mary doing? Well, she was seeking and then telling. That's who Mary is here. Mary Magdalene was one who sought for Christ himself. We already looked at verse one, but what did she do? Remember, it was the first day of the week, several days after Jesus had died, 
and she came early. In other words, she was the first one there. The other gospel accounts, and even here uses the word we, so there's probably other women with her. In other words, she's taking her whole group and saying, we got to go to the body of the Lord while it's still dark and see if the stone taketh away. And, and to me, this cracks me up. She didn't run inside to see, is Jesus in there? She just says, the door's open. He's not here. I might as well go tell other people because this is really important. And I'm looking for Jesus. And so she was the first to the tomb and first to see the stone taken away. And again, Mary could not have moved that stone by herself. There's no way she would have been able to move the weight. But what happens? Well, look at verse 11. It says, but Mary stood without or outside the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. Remember, this is after the disciples had already gone in and then left. And what does she see? And seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? What do you mean, why weepest thou? Don't you know what's happened? Jesus has been crucified. He's been killed. And she saith unto them, verse 13, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. In other words, she didn't care about the angels. <laughs> I mean, how would you respond? Two angels sitting there? And they're saying, why are you crying? And she's like, she's not, oh, angels. No, she's, where's Jesus? I want Jesus. I'm looking for Jesus. Where have you taken him? That's what her heart and her desire was. Verse 14, and then when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. So the picture here is she's at the, the opening of this tomb and you have to stoop down, look in. She has the conversation with the angels and then she kind of turns back around and sees a figure, sees a person, doesn't know who it is. We'll find out that it actually is Jesus Verse 15 says, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? You're looking for someone. She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Again, singular focus. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And now she just thinks this is a gardener, and part of it may just be it's early in the morning. Remember, she came while it was still dark. Part of it is, you know, she's been in the tomb, and then there's this figure outside, and so she doesn't immediately recognize all of that. So she doesn't immediately recognize any of those things. But when does she recognize? Look at verse 16. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. He just simply says her name, Mary. And then boom, it all comes flooding back. Here he is. Here's the one that has healed me. Here's the one that I've been pursuing. Here's the one that I've been searching for. Here he is. So she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, or Rabbi, you've heard that term, which is to say, Master. And I almost imagine her just whispering it in a hoarse voice. Almost like Pastor Jeff when he's finally able to say hi or talk to his family. It's that sweetness, that tenderness. Mary, Rabbi, you're here. You're back. We've got a little taste of that feeling. 
told Pastor Jeff we weren't going to put a big cardboard stone and roll it out of the way for him to come through. (laughs) But know this, the promise, as we'll see, the promise we saw with Lazarus is that anyone who has died and believes in Christ as Savior, for us, for them, the stone will be rolled away, the grave will be opened, and there will be a great resurrection. And it's all based on this fact that Jesus is alive. He is risen. So what does Jesus say to Mary? She was seeking him. She finally got to see him. But it's a little bit like today. You don't get to actually touch him. (laughs) Verse 17, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. What is Jesus saying here? Now is not the time for a warm embrace, to hug me, to hold tightly to me. Now is the time to go and tell others that I'm alive, that I've risen. Go tell the other disciples that I'm alive from the dead. The ones who follow me, the ones who follow God. Notice all the family relationships that Jesus is using here. He's saying, even though you can't touch or embrace, that's not the time right now. He uses terms like father and brethren. He's saying, as a sweet family, now's the time to spread the news. You found me, I'm alive, now go and tell And so, verse 18, that's exactly what she does. Verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. So we've seen John already. He saw the empty tomb and he believed. We've seen Mary now. She sought after Christ and then she told others, he's alive. Notice both of these are coming directly from the eyewitnesses. These are the people who were there that saw that. And if you study at all how our scripture has been passed down from generations, we can go all the way back to the first century and say, the Bible that we hold in our hands is the true and preserved and very word of God that God has graciously given to us today. So we now hear from the eyewitnesses themselves and can say boldly and with confidence He is risen. He is alive. So she went and told. Then there's the third person. We're going to skip over a few verses and come back to them. But there's the third person I want to look at, and that's Thomas. Now, Thomas always gets a bad rap, right? What's Thomas's first name? Doubting, right? (laughs) It's Doubting Thomas. And that's what he's known for. But who is he? Well, Thomas actually shows up two other times, besides the list of disciples, but two other times in John, Thomas actually shows up. And one of them is at Lazarus' resurrection. He's there. He sees Lazarus raised from the dead. And he even talks with the Lord about it. So Thomas has experienced all that. He's seen Jesus raise someone else from the dead. An amazing miracle. The other time we see Thomas is in a very important passage as well, where he asked Jesus a question, 
And he says, Lord, how can we know the way? Remember that in John 14? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Thomas has already showed up twice, and look what he has seen and what he has heard. He has seen a man already raised from the dead. He has heard the good news of Jesus and Jesus himself saying, I'm the only way, I'm the truth, and I'm the very life. And what is Thomas's first reaction when he hears about the resurrection? Well, look at verse 24 here in John 20 where it says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, that means twin, Thomas also means twin, so we have reason to believe that he was a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So Jesus had appeared previously to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there in that gathering. Verse 25, the other's disciples said unto him, we have seen the Lord, eyewitness account, but he said unto them, except I see the hand, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And friend, maybe some of you are here today and you've heard this story. You've heard of the eyewitness accounts. You've heard people say, Jesus is risen. He's alive from the dead And that's, I think, all of our natural response. As natural people, as humans, we say, it can't be. I don't believe it. That can't happen. Someone rising from the dead? Are you kidding me? And we say in our hearts, just like Thomas, even though he gets all the grief, we doubt. And we we can say, I will not believe. Friend, may I kindly say, that when God says something is true, and then, I, then we say, I will not, we're walking on pretty dangerous territory. And the reason I can say that with confidence and boldness is not because of who I am, but because who God is and how he's revealed himself in the scriptures. As creator, as one who has spoken the worlds into existence, as one who has revealed himself through the beauty we see in creation, it declares there is a creator. God is real. So that man is without excuse. We can't just say, ah, God doesn't exist. And if there is a God who can speak the world into existence, who can create man simply out of dust and breathing into him the nostrils, the breath of life, how hard is it for God to raise someone from the dead? It's nothing. He made it all. So be careful about doubting God. Because as we'll see with Thomas, he was doubting, then confessed. We'll see what he confessed. So he says, I will never believe. Verse 26, we pick up again. And God gives him a little bit of time. He gives him a little over a week. And it says, after eight days, again, his disciples were within. And this time, Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. So here they all are, locked in a room, still trying to figure things out. It's been now a full week, over a week. 
and he appears, either the door opening like it did with Peter, remember Peter was in jail and an angel just opened the doors and he was able to walk out, or Jesus just miraculously appeared in their midst. Either way, it's not what they were expecting. I don't know, were any of you expecting Pastor Jeff to come through the door? I think some of you had a a hint of that, but I think it was a surprise for others. And Jesus' first response is peace. Peace be with you. It's okay. Then saith he to Thomas, "Uh uh-oh. You've ever been in that situation with your parents? (laughs) Uh, You may have gotten the phrase, wait till your dad gets home, right? Go to your room until your dad gets home. It's been a really bad day. And then you're waiting, and your dad comes in, <laughs> and he's, he's happy, right? He's very kind to all the other children, to mom, smiles on everyone's faces, but mom's already called him at work, and he knows exactly what you did that day. And then he turns to you, <laughs> looks you right in the eye, and starts speaking, But Jesus here does the same with Thomas, but in a very kind way. He said, okay, you want to feel? You want to touch? Reach hither thy finger, verse 27. Behold my hands. Reach hither into my side, where Jesus had been pierced with a spear, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Jesus said, you're not going to believe? Okay, you want to touch? You want to feel? You want to put your hand in my side? Doubting Thomas, don't be faithless, but believe. Now, what was Thomas's response? In my mind's eye, he didn't even bother touching Jesus. At that point, <laughs> at that point, you know you're wrong. You know you've been proved wrong. And what is Thomas's response? Verse 28, and Thomas answered and said unto him, here's his confession, my Lord And my God. Thomas realized then in that moment, okay, Jesus is who he said he is. He is the Son of God. He is sent from God. He is God Himself, Son of God, being the idea of the exact image replica, the idea that Christ is God. He possesses all that God is. That's why he's saying, My God. Now, some would take this and say, okay, Thomas said that, and uh, he's just using God's name in vain here. And let me warn you about that, because what has just happened? He's denied that Jesus has risen from the dead, and Jesus is saying, I want you to see that I have risen from the dead. This isn't Thomas being flippant here at all. This is a very somber and serious occasion where he's saying, okay, You are Lord, and you are God. So from doubting to confessing. Now, friend, let me warn you as kindly as I can that you may not confess that idea here today. You may say, no, Jesus, he's not God. He's not Lord. But I want to assure you on the authority of God's word that everyone who is doubting today one day will confess that Jesus is Lord. Here's the difference. Notice the little word that Thomas uses twice in verse 28, before Lord and before God. He uses the word my. 
my Lord and my God. And friend, that's the difference between believing now or dying and it being too late and spending eternity in what Jesus himself calls a lake of fire. Reserved for the devil and his angels. He doesn't want anyone to go there. But that's where he says each one of us deserve to go because of our sin. Because of our brokenness. And so unless you can say with faith that he's my God and my Lord, you can doubt all your life. And one day you will say, yes, he is the Lord and he is God. But at that point it will be too late. So what we learn from doubting Thomas is confess now that Jesus is Lord. And that's what we'll get to in the end. So peace touched me. And what is his response? Well, notice Jesus' response here. Because it's very informative. After Thomas's uh, confession, verse 29, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, and thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Here's the encouragement. He's saying, Thomas, you said, I will not believe unless I see you. And Jesus is saying to now all people throughout all times and all generations, including us today, blessed are you, blessed am I, those who don't see and yet take God at his word and say, I believe. I believe. He is risen. Praise the Lord. So the response is, you don't have to see to believe. You have to hear and believe. The eyewitnesses accounts of this. So we've looked at John, the beloved disciple, from seeing to believing. The empty tomb, and he believed. We've seen Mary Magdalene, the one who sought after and then went out and told others, Christ, he is risen. And we've seen doubting Thomas, the one, though, that came around and confessed, this is my Lord and my God. So there's two, then, responses that are called upon in this passage. There's one for the believer, the one who says, yes, I believe. And there's one for the unbeliever, the one who says, no, I don't believe. So let's start with the believer. If you go back with me at verse 19, verse 19, this is right after the Mary Magdalene goes and tells the other disciples. Verse 19, it says, Then the same day, that same resurrection Sunday, at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, then came Jesus and stood in front of the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. So what's happening here? The disciples, they're meeting in fear. Fear of what? The Jews. Who are the Jews? The, per the people that just put Jesus on the cross. Okay, so if you're his disciple, there's reason to be fearful, right? 
they just killed your leader. But Jesus comes to them, and he comes in a loving, again, and kind way and says, peace. And then he showed and he told what had happened. Here I am, in the flesh. I'm risen. And then he gives what's, what some will call John's great commission. We know the Matthew passage where Jesus says, go and make disciples. Well, here in John, this is Jesus' great commission again, where he's saying, as the Father, as God the Father has sent me, God the Son, to the world, now I am sending you. So this, the commission then for the believers, for the disciples is, go, I send you, and I send you, notice, in the power of the triune God. Notice that all three members of the Trinity are mentioned here. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all mentioned here. And that's where you see that God is giving, Christ is giving the power then to go out. Now we know several days or weeks later is when Pentecost happens. And that's the beginning of the church and when they, then all believers receive the Holy Spirit. But here we're seeing that this is a mission that is divinely empowered by God. And what is that mission? Well, that's what he says there in verse 23. Whoever sins you remit, the idea is they have been remitted. What does it mean to remit sins? The idea here is forgiveness or removal. And Jesus is saying, because of my death, my burial, and my resurrection, I have proved that I have power over death itself. You know our sin condemns us to death? The fact that we have sinned against a holy God condemns us to death. And yet God, Christ here is saying, I have power over death. So I have power to forgive sins. And if you go out preaching my name, that power is going with you to forgive, to have the forgiveness of sins upon you. So this is what, this is what it comes down to. Here's the great commission that Jesus is saying to believers. Go in my power and preach the gospel and preach the good news. Sins can be forgiven. Jesus saves because Jesus is a risen Savior. So for the believer, that's the call. Go. Go in God's power, not your own, and go and preach this message Christ came to save sinful people. Praise the Lord, he is risen. The second response is directed more towards the unbeliever. Look at verses 30 and 31 here. The end of John, this would, some would say this is his summary statement of the whole book, not just the passage we're looking at, but the entire book, the apostle John, the disciple John, says in verse 30 of John 20 that many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. He's saying, I only have so much space, but I'm an eyewitness, and I want to declare unto you that there are so many other signs, miraculous things that happen, supernatural things that Jesus did that I'm declaring unto you there's just too many to even list but verse 31, but these things were written or are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. What's the key phrase? The word 
You notice it's mentioned twice there. Ye might believe. So what are you believing? Well, he says, Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ is the same word we use for Messiah. Same idea. And it means God's anointed one. It's the one who is prophesied in the Old Testament that would come and be the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world. That's who Jesus is. His death on the cross was substitutionary. In other words, he took our punishment, our place, what we deserve because of our sin, and he died on the cross as the Messiah. But he wasn't just a man, a good man. You can't look at Jesus and say, oh, he's a good teacher. That, that, that shows way too short of what Jesus and John himself say. Because he goes on to say, the Son of God. And if you read other portions of John, when he said, I and the Father are one. And the Jews, seeing that he made himself out to be the Son of God, they picked up stones to kill him. They wanted to kill him right then and there. Because what Jesus was saying is, I am God. I'm not just any man. I am God in the flesh. And the Jews took it that way because they were, gonna, they were ready to kill him right then and there. And so Jesus is declaring, I'm not just any man, I am God in the flesh. And only God in the flesh can atone or die for or be able to remit or forgive the sins of the world. Look at it this way. One sin against a holy and infinite God the just punishment for even one sin is eternity in the lake of fire. And why can I say that? It's not because I'm unloving. It's because I want to love you and I want to declare the truth. That if God is infinitely holy, then all it takes is one sin to be infinitely guilty against a holy God. And so therefore, the only payment that can rid you or relieve us from that has to be a holy, infinite God. And that's why Christ came. He took on flesh to be our sacrifice. So Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life. Life through his name. Life, the opposite of death. And Jesus talks often about this in the book of John. Everlasting life. He gives to all who will believe. What does it mean to believe? It means to depend upon, fully trust. It's not just saying, oh yeah, God exists. Or yeah, Jesus Christ died. Or that he rose again even. It's saying, no, Jesus is my savior. And then actually calling out, even as Thomas did, my Lord, my God, you are the one, the only one who can save me. So we've seen three people. John, he saw the empty tomb, he believed. Mary, she was seeking Jesus and then told others. Thomas doubted, but then confessed. So what's your response today? If you say, yes, I believe that Jesus has died and risen for my sin, then his command is, go in my power and tell others there's forgiveness of sins. If you're here, though, today and you say, no, I don't believe that, the call here is, this book, John, the Gospel of John specifically, is written specifically so that ye might believe and that ye might have eternal life. 
God freely offers that to all who will come, to all who will believe. Praise the Lord. The tomb is empty. The Savior is risen. How are you going to respond to him?